And welcome to Grid Talk, a series of conversations with the leaders and innovators shaping the 21st century grid. Hosting the podcast is Marty Rosenberg, an award-winning energy journalist. The series is sponsored by the Department of Energy's Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Now, here's Marty Rosenberg with Grid Talk. Hi, welcome to Grid Talk. Today we have with us Nick Voros, who's Evergy's Senior Manager of Electrification based here in Kansas City, Missouri. Hi, Nick. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing great about yourself. Good, good. I'm very excited to have you on to talk about all things electric vehicles, especially in light of the coming expenditure and investment from the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act Mm -hmm. and the Inflation Reduction Act. Mm -hmm. A lot of words there, but what it adds up to is $7.5 billion for building out electric uh, electrification carters for electric vehicles across America. Is that going to get the entire job job done, or is it going to get us well down the road? I, I would say that it is going to unlock nationwide travel with respect to EVs. So at the very least, it is going to accomplish that job because the National EV Infrastructure Program, which is nested within the IIJA, as we lovingly refer to it as, um, is intent on creating charging sites every 50 miles along our major highway corridors coast to coast. So, Nick, I've been privy to the fact, because I live in Kansas City, that Evergy has been very aggressive and early adopting on EV charging deployments. What do you think that has gained you as a company uh, where you sit now with this avalanche of money about to descend on this region? Yeah, so Kansas City, the Kansas City metro area, greater Kansas City metro area, is a great place to own an EV, not the least of which because we do have a a rather robust network of community, I'll call them community charging stations, level two charging stations. And these stations provide us with insight about where and when charging is occurring. They shape our our opinions and our advice to the federal government when they ask us, you know, hey, what are what are some of the Uh, requirements that we should bake into some of these IIJA sub-programs. So we are really happy with our network and um, look forward to seeing it expand as the community charging grant programs um, take hold over the next, say, five, six years. So in Kansas City, you have about a thousand EV charging stations, is that correct? That's correct. And while utilization might have lagged early on, uh, I think you've shared with me that the rate of energy flowing through them is growing by about 50% a year. Is that? Yeah. Yep, that is correct. What kind of strains is that starting to put on your system, or do you take it all in the stride? Yeah, not yet. You know, the, the, the starting point, right? back in 2014 is zero. So so you're starting from a low bottom and you're growing from there. So even though it's 50% year over year, we still are not at a level that is straining the supporting infrastructure for those stations. It's certainly something that we have our eyes on. We have the capability technically to do demand response on those stations. And if we get to the point where that makes sense, we will implement a demand response program that for example, might 
decrease the charging intensity of those stations over a you know few hour peak period from say seven kilowatts to three and a half kilowatts. Um, again, we, we have the capability to do that technically, but we have not needed to do that. So in terms of the cus- customer facing side of that, do you think you might come out with a program where you say charge your car in the evening or in the morning and you'll get half the price? Yeah, so we, we already have time of use rates, as they're known, in the residential space in both of the states where we operate. And we are continually looking at other rate designs that accomplish that very goal, which is to incentivize folks to charge off-peak. Beyond time of use rates, utilities are starting to, I will, I will characterize it as dabble in um, other programs that put the utility in a more active role in uh, controlling charging of folks' electric vehicles, people who are, who are interested in signing up with those programs. And those programs generally take the form of the utility will incentivize the EV owner in exchange for a greater control over when that car charges. Okay. We're flipping around a little bit here because everything you're saying is so exciting to me. I've got all my brain cells flashing. So I want to ask you, get back to what you said a few minutes ago, that you think the $7.5 billion will unlock national travel. Mm-hmm. A, give us a time frame on how long that you think it will take to intelligently spend that $7.5 billion. Is, is it going to be a year, 10 years? And B, what does national travel mean to you? Do you mean Kansas City residents will have no qualms about taking their EVs to Chicago, Dallas, St. Louis, or Denver? Yes, I would say, beginning with the latter part of your question, exactly that. If Once we get to the point where we have highway corridor stations every 50 miles, it, it really reduces, I dare say, eliminates range anxiety because you have so many charging options. That does not exist right now. So if you... You can travel interstate with an EV. It's, it's particularly easy with Tesla just for unique reasons because of their supercharger network. But with non-Tesla EVs, you can travel coast to coast at this point, but you have to have a little bit of a pioneer spirit to do so because your charging, um, your charging options are so few. So I have a good friend who has a Nissan Leaf. Mm-hmm in part by, because of encouragement by your company, which had promotions promoting those, would, an e, would even a LEAF owner be able to have that kind of intercity transport available to them? Technically, yes. I mean, a, a car that has, let's say, 200 miles of range on paper uh, at interstate speed, and this is kind of a whole other conversation, but at interstate speed, that car might be more like... 150 miles of range. So if you have charging stations every 50 miles, you can uh, interstate travel with a Nissan Leaf. Okay. And I'll remind you of the A part of my question. How long will this build out take? And it's a great question. The, the funding is going to go to the states over the next five years. I believe it's calendar year 2022 through 2026. The spend is not going to be exactly in alignment with that funding, uh, nor does it need to be by law. It's not like use it or lose it within, you know, by the end of 2026. And that is important because among other 
complexities in getting this money spent is supply chain. These stations, these highway corridor stations, are going to require some fairly sizable transformers and other electrical components, in addition to the charging stations themselves, right? All of which have their own supply chain challenges. So I would expect in the Midwest, and I can only speak for, you know, the territory that I'm in, I, I would be surprised if we start seeing these stations before on the ground operable before, I'm going I'm to say early 2024, late 2023 timeframe. And then just from where, from, from there, just look forward five years. And I think that's, I think that's your build. Well, late 2023 is really not that far. It's pretty much a year from now. Yeah, I'm much more comfortable with my early 2024 than I am the late 2023. (laughs) I'm trying to be optimistic here. Okay, let's get into the weeds a little bit bit now on Evergy's philosophy and approach to this. Early on, because you were an early adapter, you probably wanted to do it your way and just learn as much as you could. So you had utility-owned charging stations deployed across your service territory. Now you're taking an approach, in part because of uh, regulatory encouragement, particularly in Kansas, of having third parties come and develop these sites. Um, And as you and I have chatted in the past, some of this legislation is fairly complicated, a thousand pages to to wade through to to get into the nitty gritty. What role do you see at Evergy encouraging deployment of these charging stations, particularly in your service territory, where you work with a third party and help them hand in glove? And uh, how does that evolve your sense of Evergy's mission? Yeah, so there, there's at least a couple of ways that we can support this build out with with this federal money um, by non-utility entities. And the first is to offer rebates that help them achieve their 20% local match that is required by the program. Uh, the, the grant funding is covers 80%, and then they have to come up with the other 20% from other sources. And in Kansas, we're gonna be able to do that and offer that to the developers who are building these highway corridor stations. The second thing we can do is we can work with with the state, with the Kansas Department of Transportation and with the developers to help hone in on what are the locations that kind of meet the checklist of requirements required by the funding, but also minimize the amount of investment that is required on the utility side of the meter, right? Because the developers are going to, or could be, responsible for at least a portion of that. It's part of their total costs. So everybody wins if we can cite these in locations where the utility side investment is is minimized. Do you have a list of 30 third party players that are chomping at the bits to get at this? How robust is is business engagement on this front? Yeah, we we know we know a few of them just from our in in interactions with them prior to the law being passed. I would say at this point 
the Kansas and Missouri Departments of Transportation probably have a much better list because that is who these developers have been engaged with to date. Um, they're going to come knocking when when the state DOTs issue their you know requests for proposals for these sites. Then then I suspect we will start engaging with those developers to help them craft their their grant applications. But heretofore, we have not been engaged with them. As somebody that watches this very closely, um, I'm sure you know about all the auto manufacturers that have made pronouncements that they're going to stop producing fossil fuel-powered cars at certain points. Um, given the nature of the auto fleet, it'll take decades possibly to cycle beyond that. Um, but how fast do you see EV deployments coming Um in the next few years. Can you give us an idea in Kansas City and nationally, perhaps? I mean, would you be surprised to see half the vehicles on the road EV by year X? And, and what would that year be? Yeah, so I, I, I would say this. I, I would say that EV adoption for probably the rest of this decade is going to be very region specific. One of the interesting statistics that's out there right now is that 60% of the EVs that have been sold to date have gone to five states. And they are, I'm gonna challenge myself here, Washington, California, Texas, New York, and Florida. So you could very easily see a scenario wherein from a national perspective, we've reached 50% EV sales, but in Kansas and Missouri, we are quite shy of 50%. Um, that's, that's a scenario that I think is, is fairly likely. Right now, we are at 3% as an example of new car sales, our EVs. You look at California, I think California is 15%. So there's there's really a, a lumpiness based on um, a, a variety of, of reasons. As, as someone who comes from uh, small town Missouri, Walnut Grove. Go Tigers. Which you say is population 504. <clears throat> 504, I, I assume you know them down to the last four. Um, what's the attitude in Walnut Grove, Missouri, towards EVs, and what will it take to change it? Yeah, so... I I would say that that Walnut Grove, gosh, not to speak for my hometown, but I think I'm going to speak for my hometown. Um, I think that their opinion of EVs is probably pretty indicative of of towns kind of in that in that demographic. They are about 25 minutes from, you know, the nearest town with you know like a Walmart, right? So you you got to travel to get into what we call town, which is which is Springfield, Missouri. So EVs are not, um, I'd say they're an increasingly good fit for people in Walnut Grove, but it's not top of mind for them. Um, what it's gonna take is- I bet the Ford F-150 will be popular down there. Yeah, you know, so I, I grew up on a beef farm and uh, spent 18 plus years uh, seeing firsthand how uh, trucks are used on the farm. And I, I, I don't know if I'm being overly pessimistic, but my take on that is that I think that full-size trucks are probably, um, I think it's going to be the better part of 2030 before they are a replacement for, you know, like a diesel pickup. Do you, you know, it just occurs to me that I could see a trend, and I wonder if you see it too, 
where EV adoption and deployment and charging infrastructure adoption is going to be something like internet access, high-speed internet access, where it came first to the states you mentioned, uh, which are kind of leaning into technology. And then it became an issue of more rural states uh, or less densely populated states thinking they were being passed by by modernity and they wanted this for deployment. Do you see that evolving maybe in, in five, six years where people start crying out and saying, what about Walnut Grove? Let's get more charging down in there and, and spur EV adoption. Yeah, I, I can tell you my, my experience over the past couple of years since I've been in this role, um, particularly with Kansas, is that um, the posture of our regulator specifically has become um, much more favorable towards EVs. I, I, I think that um, you know the right people in in Kansas, the people who can who can make a difference, decision makers, are are seeing that. I mean, we just had the pronouncement of a Panasonic battery factory that is, you know, coming in there in DeSoto, Kansas. And that is the, that was the culmination of a huge effort from policy to private industry, you know, involving a diverse set of stakeholders who are all convinced that EVs are the future. Um, we, we, we should get on this bus and, and, and help make sure that the benefits of EVs accrue to Kansas. I'm going to get uh, a bit wonky with you, but a while ago there was talk about utilities using EVs as far-flung energy storage opportunities where you dispatch power out of EVs. Is Evergy still looking at that, and when is that going to be ready for prime time? We are okay. So what we're talking about really is is vehicle to grid, where you take the energy stored in the vehicle's battery and export it to the grid. Um, we we think that over the near term, and I'll define near term as the next five years or so, probably the best application for that is school buses. There are a number of technical standards and um, base governance tariffs, things like that, that need to fall into place before that is really achievable in, in our service territory. And we are certainly working, you know, a broad group across Evergy is working to understand kind of what are the waypoints, what are the hurdles that we have to get over to make V2G a reality. But again, I would say it's going to begin with school buses. People like to talk about, you know, F-150 Lightnings and, and passenger vehicles setting in their in their homes, exporting to the grid. I, I think we're, we're several years away from that, um, if it ever becomes a thing, because, you know, there, there's the technical side of that. It's, it's, I think it's one of those classical situations where, from a technical perspective, we're going to be able to do it. Our customers are going to want to do it. Are they going to want to take their car and let the utility discharge the battery, you know, 20 times a year or whatever? As you know, uh, Kansas City is building a new airport. It's opening next year. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Could you see people plugging their EVs when they take a flight for 10 days and have their storage be charged, something that Evergy buys and possibly pays for their parking at the airport. Those kinds of scenarios are possible. Mm -hmm. um, customers might like that, yeah. free parking at the airport. Yeah, I, I think that maybe those, those niche opportunities, like what you're talking about, um, I, I, but like I said, from a technological perspective, 
it will be possible to do things like that. The, the question is, are the, are the economics there and are the customer participation there? So th- this also gets to the heart of, of uh, energy and utility culture. Uh, utilities for 100 years have been fairly conservative and cautious because they had huge investments that were public trusts that they didn't want to gamble with. This requires possibly a new business model uh, are you talking about that internally? Um, wasn't too long ago, a couple of decades, where you went out and promoted heavily the all-electric home, convert to heating, then it became convert to heat pumps. Um, do you see Evergy getting out there and promoting EVs and possibly building a new business around that? I would say that you know it, it, we certainly have a a strategic goal of accelerating EV adoption, but I would I would qualify that to say that in the grand scheme of things, that's a relatively short term goal. Um, EV adoption in the short term, or accelerating it, I should say, it provides three benefits to the utility. It it, it gives us an ever increasing population of EVs that we can learn from, right? Because we know, you know, our our goals. What's overshadowing or our our goals is the the belief that EV adoption, when you look at it over a 20, 30 year time period, electrification of the transportation sector is inevitable. It's going to happen. So what is the advantage of bringing some of that adoption forward in time provides us with a bunch of vehicles that we can learn from, right? There's no substitute to having vehicles on the ground that can inform the decisions we make about programs to improve the grid and to get that grid ready for mass EV adoption. They also provide revenue, right? Because these programs are going to cost money. And and so accelerating EV adoption provides that incremental revenue to help pay for some of these new programs. And and lastly, every customer who makes that switch to an electric car in, for example, 2023, that's one fewer customer that's going to make that switch in 2029 or 2030. So it helps to flatten that hockey stick, which benefits everybody. So we certainly, over the short term, are interested in spurring uh, or accelerating EV adoption, and we have rates and rebates that are designed to do that very thing. Um, looking beyond that, however, we see that that our our main strategic goal is to just make sure that we can attenuate, lessen um, distribution grid impacts. We want to be able to bring these cars onto our grid without producing a bunch of cost. Because if we can do so, if we can bring these costs, these cars onto our grid, let's say cheaply, um, then that revenue puts downward pressure on rates. And that benefits all of our customers, regardless of whether they are EV owners. Just a ballpark, seat of the pants estimate here. When you see EVs widely deployed in Kansas City, what share of your revenue will come from EV charging compared to, say, air conditioning, which is a heavy source of revenue? Will it be equal or or half or what's your sense yeah it, it, it'll be less than half um and it you know by by 2030 i mean it's it's a single digit percent of our total load it, it's rather small you know and it's interesting because you can look at evs from a utility perspective we look at evs through two lenses you look at it through the thirty thousand foot lens and it's like okay i have a i have a thousand vehicles in my service territory and they require you know x megawatt hours per year to serve them and that's fine you know you compare that to our other loads and it's a very small number so you think that's no big deal well what happens if those thousand reside in two zip codes which may be be the case 
exactly. So, so, so now I, so my concern is maybe more than the macro level concern of, do I have enough generation for all these? My concern is really what's my local distribution grid look like? And is it able to deal with these um, vehicles that are clustered in my service territory? Well, I just wonder personally, um, you started your career at Exxon Mm -hmm. early on. And now you're at a utility that's getting into transportation via electricity. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you've come full circle? And what does that mean to you personally? It's been a lot of whiplash. Yeah, I was. Uh, I, I started my career at Exxon. I'm a I'm a degreed chemical engineer, and uh, people have long forgotten. But in like 1999, oil hit nine dollars a barrel, and I got shifted over to the electrical in, uh, generation industry. Never never escaped. Uh, but here I am doing uh, fueling cars yet again. So uh, there's a, there's kind of a beautiful symmetry to that, I guess. Do you feel like you're at the uh, leading edge of? Forgive the pun, where the rubber meets the road in terms of change at Evergy? I would say that this is arguably one of the most dynamic corners of the utility right now. Um, uh, More informally, I thought about not saying this, but I'm going to say it. Um, What what I like to say is there's, I don't think there's anything the utility does that's sexy, but this is the closest thing. (laughs) For an engineer, that's saying a lot, right? That's right. (laughs) High praise. We've been talking to, to Nick Varos. Thank you, Nick. Appreciate it. Thank you. Nick Voros is Evergy's Senior Manager of Electrification. Please send us your feedback or questions at gridtalk at nrl.gov. And we encourage you to give the podcast a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. For more information about the series or to subscribe, visit smartgrid.gov. Thanks for listening to Grid Talk, presented by the U.S. Department of Energy Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Subscribe through your favorite podcast provider or visit smartgrid.gov for more information.